Okay. I would have been really bummed if you weren't here today. Hey, good morning. Uh, welcome. Uh, we are in the final week of our series called Elevate Your Life. And uh, if you're new with us, we've been, uh, we, we've been working through this workbook uh, through the first two months of the year uh, where we're, we're really trying to flip the script of trying to say at the beginning of the year, there's kind of this rush in, in, in a lot of folks to say, and I want to think about how to uh, develop kind of the best version of me. And so uh, really, instead of saying, here's my dreams, here's my plans, here's my direction in life, really saying, uh, Lord, what, what are your plans? And letting him uh, have, have a, a role in that. And so uh, listening has been really key to this. And we've been working with pencil, uh, realizing we have some ideas and we erase them and kind of keep working and reworking. Uh, but through this whole process, uh, spending time in what we call uh, uh, some devotion time uh, through a process called SOAP, where we uh, think through a scripture, meditate on a scripture throughout the week, uh, where we uh, come together here, where we realize there's something that we can experience together here that you can't quite get on your own, and then uh, encouraging you, if you're able to, to be in a life group to share with a group of people. And it's been really neat. There's been just some fa- just fabulous momentum in the church. Uh, we're seeing it in all kinds of ways. In fact, even last year was interesting you're in this service, this whole whole section was gone. Like it was like a hole. Nobody wanted to sit right there because I, I, it was like a, like a, a vortex would suck you into whatever it was. But um, we had our largest Sunday last week of attendance and it was a holiday weekend. There's just a real energy. People are excited about what's happening. Someone was sharing with me earlier uh, over these last eight weeks. I just feel like I'm going deeper uh, in my relationship with God. And those are the things that we love hearing we just see the momentum, uh, not only on Sundays, our life groups are growing, uh, just all kinds of things that are happening. So uh, it has been a really good season uh, for us. We, we're going to conclude our, our uh, series today, and I'll tell you a little bit about where we're going next. But uh, key, as I said, to this whole experience has been listening. And so here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to take about 30 seconds uh, to just, uh, as Joy said, we, we got up early this morning. We've been praying for you all week. We've been praying for you. Um, but I want to invite you to a bold prayer, and the prayer is just, Lord, what, what do you want me to hear today? What do you want to say today? I want to be uh, listening. There's a, there's a great moment in the scriptures where uh, a young person uh, is given this instructions when t- to say, uh, when the Lord speaks to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so can I invite you to that, that very prayer, just to say, Lord, I'm here, I'm listening. What do you want to say? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Take about 20 seconds just to offer a prayer. Uh, to him, and then we'll jump into things. So, Lord, we are listening. Uh, impress upon us this, this very, very important idea that David is trying to communicate uh, through this psalm. Uh, open our hearts once again to the, the direction that you have for us that will we'll raise our lives up, we'll elevate them to the, the place that you would have them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my guess is many of you at some point have heard the fable of the scorpion and the frog, but in case you haven't, the, the idea behind the fable is uh, a scorpion needs to cross a river. He asks a frog if he can you know, jump on his back and, and hitch a ride. And of course, the frog's concern is, no, that's not going to work because uh, you'll sting me. 
And so the uh, scorpion resorts to reason. Well, that wouldn't be smart of me to do. If I, if I sting you, we'll both drown. And so they have this conversation. The frog relents. Uh, he decides he's going to do it. And so about halfway across the water, uh, what does the scorpion do? Stings the frog. And as they begin to sink, the frog looks back and says, you know, why? How, how come you stung me? And the scorpion's response is, because I'm a scorpion. And that's what we do. That's my nature. Uh, it, it's kind of an interesting fable kind of to help you see that in some play, w- p- moments in time that there and uh, places that there are people or, or uh, uh, creatures who have a nature to them. It's, we're, we're wired for certain things. Uh, my, when my friend got bit by a rattlesnake, we were down in the hospital. We rushed him in. I'm freaking some of you out. Uh, trust me, there's a worse picture coming. Um, uh, but the... Uh, when, when he was bit by this rattlesnake, we were kind of panicking, and I said, I, we were in a kind of an area that it looked like this had happened, like, I'm thinking, this is kind of a desert area where, where you'd have rattlesnakes. I said, so, you know, you must get a lot of patients like this, and the nurse said, no, 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 this is only our second one. And I said, oh, what was the other one? She said, there was a man, he had a pet rattlesnake, and he took it out to hold it and showed his friends, and it bit him in the face. And I thought, oh, man, how did you treat that? She goes, oh, no, we didn't treat it. He died. And I was like, I do not feel very comforted right now for my friend. But uh, as she just kind of looked, she was like, ooh, I wonder what we're going to do with it. I, I thought, okay, but why? Because what, what, what's a rattlesnake do? It, it is, it, it's its nature to strike, to, to bite. It, I mean, that's what, how it's wired. And so there's something to that. We see that. Uh, we as humans are, are wired for certain things. We are, we are wired for harmony. Uh, that there's something about us that we, we realize that the ear prefers to hear harmony. But more than just preference, uh, scientists have been able to discover that there's something just about the very structure about how, how our ear and our brain are connected that you are, you're wired for this, that you're made to appreciate this. Uh, you are wired for intimacy. God has made you in such a way there's a chemical that gets released on your brain there's that, that uh, uh, you are designed to bond with people. You are designed to be in relationship with people. But one of the things that God reveals as well is that you are wired to worship. You're wired to what You are made to worship and you will worship something or someone uh, the question isn't if you will worship. You can't say, no, I don't worship anything. You, you do. You just have to figure out what it is. The question isn't what it is it's, it, or, or if you, you're doing it. It's what are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? And so it's very interesting for us to think about this because God is constantly, we see in, in the scriptures, you would think that for the people of God, they're being instructed to worship him and to worship him alone. And that would seem like, okay, God's people probably are pretty good at doing that. But the truth is, when you read through the, the scriptures, when you read through the story of God, what you find is that God is always working with his people to draw them back into worshiping him in, in, instead of other things or instead of other, other gods, other uh, uh, things that they would offer worship to. And so here's our big idea today. Uh, because we see as God is working through all this, there's a reason why he wants us to worship him instead of anything else. So our big idea, kind of a, help us understand kind of the thread through what we're going to see today is this, that to elevate your life, give God all your worship. Give God all of your worship. We are wired for worship. And this word worship, 
Uh, this Hebrew word, shakah, means to bow down. You, you will bow down your life, your heart. You will bow down. All of us will worship. And whatever it is that you worship, you will, it will get your devotion and it will get your time and your money. Uh, you will serve it. You will praise it. You will dedicate yourself to it. And, and, and so again, as simple as it might seem that, that God's people would kind of get that about him, he's always calling them back to worship him. And so if you want to elevate your life, you have to give God all of your worship. So let's look at our last psalm. It's Psalm 145. Psalm 145, uh, page 624 in the Bible is in front of you. And this psalm, as we've seen in a number of the psalms, there, uh, a lot of them have been written by a man named King David. And King David was uh, the king of Israel at the time. And so we see a number of psalms that are written by him. This psalm is what's interesting about this psalm, and you miss it looking at it with your uh, English eyes, but if you were to see it in the Hebrew, that this is similar to what we saw a couple weeks ago in Psalm 119. It's an acrostic. Every line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so we might say in English, this is how to worship from A to Z. This is, uh, 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 as he walks in, he's going to say the how and the what's and the why's of worship from A to Z. So every single line works its way through of, of why we worship or how we worship. And that's what I want us to look at today. We'll pick up some principles that will help us understand what it means to give God all our worship. And so let's begin with verse one. We see this. He says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I'll praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. So let's stop there for a second. And the very first thing I want us to see is this, is that worship is a decision. Worship is a decision. Now we've been hinting at this, that you are, you are wired for this, but I want you to see this in this first verses, how David uh, uh, affirms this idea. He begins by stating how determined he is to praise God daily, enthusiastically, and forever. Uh, these things all kind of show something. There's, there's this sense that it's immediate, it's intense, it's devoted. He, this is how he's going to live his life. He sees God as the object of that worship, and we see it for different reasons. That God is, We see his greatness, that he's worthy of this. But also, I think what's very interesting, you notice in the first line, he says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. And so right away we see this idea. Now think about this. If you're king, David is king, and yet he is saying, you're my king. I may be the king, but you are the king and you are my king. And the personal pronouns there are very important because David is more than just saying something directly. This, again, we get a chance to kind of get into his prayer life and into his worship life, and we see how important it is uh, for him to, to state this. And much of the psalm, watch as it opens up, David is going to draw it back to the idea of God being king and, and the greatness of his kingdom. It, it, it lasts forever and ever. There's no end to it. It's, it. it's power, it's greatness, all these things. And he sees God as the one, as king, who provides for his people, who protects his people, and, and who is uh, uh, leading his people. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. All of this gives him reason to praise. But key to this, one of the things that you see here is that there's an idea um, that it's not just verbal praise. He's not just saying these things about him, but at the heart of what he's getting at is this, that there's, a, there's an imagery of, of basically David bowing down, kneeling before this king and saying, and taking his crown off and saying, 
I bow down and I worship you. You are my king. Which in essence is really important because what he's saying to us is there can only be one king in your life. Now this came up uh, recently in the country of Belgium. Burger King opened up its first restaurant there. And as an ad campaign, they decided to ask a question online, who's the king? Now, they had the Burger King king and then the, a cartoon image of the king of Belgium, King Philippe. And so they, they thought it was kind of a funny thing to interact with the people until the royal family heard about this. Uh, and of course, once they saw the cartooned image and all these things, they let them know very quickly, yeah, you're right. There can only be one king and you're not it. So uh, they took that down. But it, it's, it's a great moment for us to kind of see this idea that there really can be only one king in your life. Uh, when we think about this idea that we are tempted, aren't we? We're tempted to give our worship, to bow down to, to things, to others than God. And so when you think about this, what do you bow down to? What do you worship in your life? Louis Giglio, in his book, The Air We Breathe, uh, asked it this way. He says, so how do you know what you worship? He says, it's easy. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your money, and your allegiance. At the end of that trail, you will find a throne. And whatever or whoever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. So if you were to do that exercise, if you were to think through that, if you were to walk down this trail and think about your time and your energy and your money, your devotion, when you got to the end of that path, when you got to the end of that trail and you saw that throne and you looked up to see what was on that throne, what would it be? He continues, he says, whatever you value most will ultimately determine who you are. So if you worship money, you will become greedy at the core of your heart. If you worship some sinful habit, that same sin will grip your soul and poison your character to death. If you worship stuff, your life will become material, void of eternal significance. And if you give your praise to the God of you, you will become disappointing little God to both yourself and to those who trust in you. We were not created to worship small things, to worship stuff and certainly not to worship ourselves. We, we, we cannot live up to that. You were made and wired to worship God. Don't settle for anything less. And so this, this, this first point uh, begs the question for us to ask, what then is on the throne of your life? Well, let's look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says this. He says, One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. So here's the second thing that we notice about this life of worship and this worship of God is that it has to be expressed. Worship is expressed. And we see this idea that, that worship, really, we see the, the clearest that worship is a verb. It's expressed through the repetition of words like praise, exalt, extol. 
He's going to commend and tell and speak and, and proclaim. He's going to uh, uh, talk about, the, uh, to celebrate, to joyfully sing uh, that the greatness of God is something to be shared, that it's something to be practiced. Uh, this week, uh, Billy Graham passed away. And uh, uh, some of you kind of have know his career and know all the things he did. But uh, when, I was, when I was a uh, high school student, I got to go to the Billy Graham crusade, the one that was in L.A. here. And it was quite fascinating for me as a new Christian to kind of watch this whole phenomenon. But other people had grown up with it a long time. But one of the things that was very interesting about Billy Graham was he was amazing. He could, he could fill a stadium with, with thousands, tens of thousands of people, and he could ex- take the gospel and make it both profound and simple to understand at the same time. But what he did is when he got to the very end of his message, it was very clear that he wasn't just trying to instruct you. Uh, he was trying to transform you. He was trying to be available to God, that the Spirit of God could transform you, to, to invite you to become a follower of Jesus. And so his, his time always ended with expression. And he would invite people to come and, and I remember we were sitting way up in the nosebleed seats. I, I think it was Angel Stadium. And uh, you're watching these people just stream down from the layers, coming down in the field. I'm like, and what is going on? And thousands of people would come down on the field, giving their lives to Jesus. And so uh, this week, one of the things I thought was, I thought it was a fair thing. People said, I wonder, after he, gets, uh, he meets Jesus and gets a hug from Jesus, how many people will be in line to meet Billy Graham and say thank you for all that he did. Worship is expressed, and he would invite people, if, as they felt their hearts wanting to give God the, the worship of their lives, to express it. I loved, uh, my pastor growing up here, Doug Jeffrey, always would say this, expression deepens the impression. And so we do a lot of things. Uh, we have, since, since those days, we've always thought, he was impressed upon us. There's something, God, as God's showing you things about himself, Find ways to express it, um, to show that worship. Uh, find ways to share it uh, with other people. But one of the interesting expressions in this that I think we should take note of is this, that you see that worship is something that is both taught and learned. It's taught and learned. And so we see this unique way. I, I mean, for many of us, I think we learn about how to praise and worship God from others. We, we learn by watching and, and people teaching us. But the psalmist says this, that this, this idea is intergenerational. That the gener- this happens from one generation to the next. And we see this in the phrase, one generation will commend your works to another. He says, make sure and tell the next generation of your mighty acts. So he, and notice what he's saying. On my watch, we will commend the next generation. And this is, this is significant because if you go back as David could have gone back hundreds of years and looked at the, the history of God's people, as God was establishing his people, as they were preparing to go into the promised land that he, he had for them, uh, he, he said that he had established this way of life for them, these commandments that they would live that would bring the fullness of life and blessing he had. And he said this, he said, now these, these commandments are be upon your heart, impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you get up and when you go to bed. And you kind of look at this and it's like, really what he's saying is, talk about them with the next generation all the time. Talk about it everywhere you are, everywhere you go. Always be talking about these things. And what's significant about it is later in the passage, it comes to this moment where they, he, he, he prepares us for what's the inevitable. He says, there will come a day and your kids are going to ask you, 
why do we do this? Why do we worship this God and not the other God? Why do we, why do we go to church and not stay home and sleep in and go, go to Sugar Shack and, uh, or, or surf or, or watch football? Like, why do we get up and do this? And it's fascinating what God says in that moment. He says, when, they, when that time comes, he doesn't say, tell them because I said so, and I will thunderbolt them right to the skull if they don't. Okay? No, he says, when that time comes, tell them about who I am. Tell them about what I've done. Tell them about what I want to do. Cast a vision for them about my greatness and about my works and help them see what, what, what I, I, I plan to do in their life as well. And I love it. It's such a beautiful vision. I, I, I've really watched that happen, as Joy said in this last month. Because here at Beach Point, this is very, very important to us is to commend to the next generation the greatness of God. Tell them, raise them up, help them discover uh, who God is, what he's done, and what he wants to do in their lives. Uh, I think about this past month, uh, as Joyce said, about 300 students and leaders that went to camp uh, during February. And that takes nothing. I mean, uh, I think the group of high school students that went last week was probably the largest in about 20 years. And so I I look at, see, I told you there was a picture scarier than the rattlesnake right there. Uh, But I think about this and I... I watched this last month and I realized as a parent, and many of you I think feel the same way, as a parent I'm absolutely indebted to the youth leaders that we have here, the, the student leaders working with our kids and with our youth and with our young adults. I, I, they, have done, they do such an incredible job. We have such an incredible team. Our, our method here is highly relational. Uh, we are heavy on small groups. We're heavy on mentoring. That is the thing. Um, years ago, we, we, I changed the way that we were going to do youth ministry in part because I realized as much as I, could, I wanted to entertain them, I couldn't out-entertain them uh, compared to the world. The world was always going to beat me at that. And so, but what I did realize is we had tremendous people that could invest in their lives. That's something I could give that the world couldn't give. And so we changed that whole me- uh, method. And at first it kind of freaked everyone out. But then parents started to see what a value it was to have these youth leaders walking alongside them as parents uh, with their kids. That there were these mentors who were listening to their questions and partnering with their growth. Uh, the conversations that were happening, all these things. It was so, such, it's been such a good thing. And you can see why uh, this is such a healthy thing and how it has affected our, our, all of our, uh, our student ministries right now. Uh, actually, our kids and our youth are, are growing at a pace faster than we can keep up with. Um, our kids, our 945 hour, our kids are, we're, we're, every room we're using as pretty much close to capacity. Uh, our two youth groups have basically outgrown their, their room. So thank you for daring faith and all that you're sacrificing to give them. I'm super excited when this next building uh, gets built coming up because we'll have some room. But in the meantime, we're just kind of shuffling around uh, to try to create room uh, for what's happening. Brandon's uh, group has, has outgrown the upstairs. Uh, the high school kids have outgrown the youth building. It's a good problem to have, but it's a problem. And the problem is this, we have, we have more young people uh, than we have mentors for. We don't have enough mentors to keep up with all this going on. And if we're going to live out this verse, then we need more of you to volunteer to work with our young adults or our, our, our high school or our middle school or our kids. Let me just help you understand a little bit of the challenge. We need at least 10 people that would join our Sunday morning team that would say, I'd stay here an extra hour to work with our kids. 
Many weeks, Amy and Gabe can't even get into church because there's just not enough people working in those places. And so uh, some of you maybe would even take that role on and say, I, here's the way I'm going to bless you over these next years. Is I'll, I'll be your sub if you need someone. Uh, there, there's such a need there. We need uh, about six to eight to work with our kids on our, our midweek time. We need about 10 to 12 youth leaders to work with our middle school and our, our high school. Um, Brian is developing, I think, a just absolute all-star team with our, our young adults. Um, but we, we know we, uh, so much is happening. And so when we look at all this, I just know this. I know for myself, our, our house is, we got as close to emptiness as I'm going to get at this point in my life. Our two boys are now out of the house. Um, and it's just me, Rebecca, and my wife. It's super uh, quiet and boring in my house right now. Uh, but I have, I, I have truly been able, though, to appreciate the Matt Greasby's and the A.J. Steely's and the Adam Hankerson's, uh, the people that came alongside my kids. And when I look at my boys and I think, man, I, I really like who they've become and I like where they're headed, I know so much of that is because of the leaders that worked uh, alongside of us. Uh, and so I, I, here's, let me just give you this as a maybe, if you can try to envision this as best you can. Here's what I would do to recruit uh, people to work with our young people back when I was a youth pastor. I would, if I, if I had anyone that I thought was a, a possible candidate, I always wanted them to show up to our high school group on a certain night. It was called Goodbye Senior Night. It was the last night of the year, which seemed like a weird night to show up, like it's all over. I said, just stand in the back and just observe what happens. And so we would, we would uh, play some games, uh, some, uh, kind of doing some history of, of the seniors, and then we'd sing some songs. And then instead of me teaching, all the seniors would be put up on the stage, and it was their chance to share uh, any last words that they wanted to share to the group or to the leaders or whatever. In 17 years, I can only remember two students saying to me, Bill, your teaching absolutely changed my life. And they, no one ever two kids. One was Katie Plummer, which she doesn't count because she's just on a whole nother level. So I, so I have one kid in 17 years, okay? But here's what would happen. The students would kind of share their, their little bit of thing, and then they would say, I want to thank Greasby. I want to thank whoever. They started naming all their leaders and saying, hey, without you, I don't know if I'd have made it. I don't. And it's, it became this very, very tender thing. And you realize, uh, here are these, some of these young adults who had spent years, or, or adults that had, had uh, done this mentoring, who had given up years of their life, uh, not given up, had invested years of their life into these people. Where all of a sudden, where uh, Paul says, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain, you would see it there. And it was just so touching. It was so emotional in so many great ways. And so at the end of the night, I'd go to the volunteer, the, the potential volunteers. And I'd say, so what'd you see? And they're like, wow, your leaders make a huge difference. I'm like, bingo. Okay, so do you want to stay at home and watch television or do you want to change lives? So you tell me kind of what, what, what you want to do. And they all realized, like, I wanted that experience. I want to make a difference in, in people. And so we would recruit just some amazing people that would come and work. Look, you can, I, I get it, there's good TV on Tuesday and Wednesdays, but you can binge watch anything you want. You have Hulu, you have Netflix, you can, there's no, you, everything's at your control. But what if you gave, what if you were willing to give a couple of hours uh, on Tuesday night with our young adults or Wednesday nights with our kids or youth 
Uh, what if you would give the next two, three, four, five years of investing in them and being able to stand back and say, wow, Lord, thank you for the, the privilege, the, the honor. Like, I can't believe that I got to be a part of what you were doing in this person's life. I, I guarantee you, you will find that God's promise that your labor in him is not in vain. I don't know what else, I don't know what you guys do for a living, but I don't think your job offers you that guarantee, okay? That what you're doing is not in vain, okay? But, but the Lord has said this, if you will serve me, I promise you it will matter. It will count for something and I'm taking note. And so I want to encourage you. We, on my watch, we are going to commend the next generation. We're going to raise up the next generation. We need some of you to help us with that. One last thing. One last thing. Notice verse 8. It says this. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. One final point I want to draw you into is this, that worship draws us into God's goodness. Worship draws us into God's goodness. When we, when we give ourselves, when we express our worship into God, uh, we are drawn into his goodness. The act of worship elevates his greatness, but as you elevate his greatness, you are drawn into it in, in a very powerful way. Uh, we've been doing this process called soap in the book. And so this past week, uh, as I was doing soap, the, the idea that stood out to me was about how the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, rich in love. And that thought, I kept thinking through that and reflecting on it all week long, meditating on it, because I found myself many times this week getting angry, getting like losing, like losing my temper in some way or another. And the moment I was about to go for outburst, thinking the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love. How many times would you have, it have been appropriate for the Lord to uh, be angry with you, but he chose not to? So why do you think you have the right now to express your anger? Can you be slow? And I found myself being drawn into God's character and it transforming the way I live. And I think many of my coworkers and my family are very appreciative of that uh, in, now in, in reflection. But notice what he's doing. He's focusing in on God's character, his splendor, his greatness, in fact, this word elevate was intentional because the, the psalmist continues to ask us to lift our eyes, to lift our, our heads to heaven, to see the greatness of God. And so we see that worship is drawn into his character. It's drawn into his, to his, his works, his mighty acts. He's focused on that. And when you see all the good that God has done to make you his own, your, your heart gets kind of pulled into it and shaped and, and, and you're touched in such a powerful way. This is important because sometimes we make worship about us, don't we? We make worship about my experience, my feeling. Ooh, I like that song. Oh, I didn't like that pause there. And we make it all about kind of I'm the consumer. I'm going to yelp you when it's all done. Thumbs up, thumbs up, like, like or whatever. And we think about worship is all about the experience. It's my experience. 
But notice, never once do you see that, do you? That this is all about who God is. It's about bringing something, not receiving something. But as we bring this, as we're drawn into his greatness of his character and his acts, then you are drawn and you see something and you experience something. If you go in expecting to get it just because of the stuff, you'll miss it all. It's easy to worship when everything's going well, but what about when things are not going well? Can you still give God worship even though your circumstances don't seem to say that? Habakkuk was a prophet, and when Israel was going through a difficult time, Jeremiah was a prophet who challenged them, but Habakkuk was one who burned with zeal towards God. His prayer life became public. He began to cry out to God, how long, how long, how long? It was a very difficult season, but I love the way that Habakkuk expresses his worship. He says in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. He's pulled into the greatness of God. Despite the circumstances, he trusts God. He knows God. He's there. He knows God is with him. He, he recognizes his character. He is the Lord. He's our God. He's our Savior. He knows what he's done. He has saved us. He is with us. He is the one who's going to provide for us. He'll rescue us out of this. We worship. We worship. We give God our worship because it really is the only logical thing to do when we think about who he is. It is really the only logical response to who he is. We worship because it really is the only logical response to what he's done. This is why in the book of Romans it says, when you think about the grace of God that's been shown to you, offer yourself as a, as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. It means really, when you think of all that Jesus has done to, to make your life possible, what else could you do but offer your life? There's nothing else, there's no response that makes any sense but to give him all of your worship, all of your life. And so as we close this series, here's the final response, this this final idea. Uh, Will you give God the worship of your life? Will you give God the worship of your life? Giving God the worship of our life is its whole life. It's not just the the, the hour here, the singing, but it means that we give God uh, our our eyes, that we worship God in what we look at and what we look for. We, we try to see the world as he sees it. We, we worship God with our, with our words by building people up instead of tearing people down. We worship God with our hands. We make ourselves available to be used by him however we, he, he sees fit. It, it's whole life. So maybe what it comes down to is to think about, we, we have 168 hours in the week. How do we become 168 hour worshipers? So maybe the bigger question is, how will you worship in the other 167 hours? So let's assume we can get this hour right. But how are you going to worship God in the other 167 hours? And see, the, the scriptures, the, the Psalms that we've been going through, they, they call to us to say, don't be content with one hour. No, 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 no. The Psalms we've been looking at say, every day I will praise you. I, my, his praise will always be on my lips. From the rising of the sun to, the, to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Trust him at all times. These themes come up all the time, everywhere. Our life should be lived as a life of worship.
And so we give him our worship as a way of life, our attention, our future, our struggles, our development, so that we can say, like the psalmist says in, in, in verse 1, that I will exalt you, my God, the King. My whole life is yours. My whole, every part about me is yours. Uh, so we're, gonna, we're, we're doing something called Remember and Celebrate today. We're trying to remember uh, where we've been, and we're going to close this last part uh, in celebration. So the band's going to come out and lead us in this last part of the, uh, the time. But I want you to think about these last eight weeks has been a little like uh, when you learned how to ride a bike. Remember, your, your parents put training wheels on your bike, and it was kind of a, a simple way to kind of begin, and you were having fun. But remember, there was at one point you, you wanted to press your parents and say, take the training wheels off. I'm ready. And your parents got super freaked out, and uh, they put like a helmet and catcher's gear and all kinds of stuff on you. And they got alongside of you, and they began to run with you, and finally they gave a push, and then they just screamed, pedal, 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 and you were going, it got a little wonky at first, but then it tightened up, right? And the same thing, I think, for us in these, these past eight weeks, you know, we started to try to build a rhythm with us, a devotion, uh, a, a, a worship service, a, a, a small group experience, this, this whole thing, and it, it started off weird a little bit, but here, here today, you know, we're ready, we're taking off the training wheels today, and we're encouraging you uh, uh, to, to, to keep, to think of the Lord this way. He's going to give you a push today, this is, and then start yelling, pedal, 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 you can do this. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited. Next week, we start a new series called Miraculous, and uh, we're going to look at, there are four uh, miracles in the book of John. We're going to go through the book of John, but there are four unique miracles that only John talks about. And John does a fascinating thing. He not only tells you what happened in that miracle, but there's this whole underlying uh, idea of, of the kingdom of God that comes out in John's writing. And it's going to be very fascinating. But uh, we're going to make available to you next week. You can get your, you'll get a new journal if you want one uh, where you can do your soap and your sermon notes and uh, your life group stuff. Um, but we're really excited for you to be able to have this and uh, have it over the year and to be able to look at the different things that God is showing you and to keep building this rhythm uh, as the Lord just calls you, pedal, pedal, pedal. You can do this. He's building something in you. And so here's how we're going to close. You received, uh, the band's gonna, just going to, as they start to play, you'll, you'll uh, get, have just kind of a time to think, but you got a postcard and you're going to write a postcard to future you. So present you gets to write a, a postcard to future you. So I want you to think three, six months from now, what would you want to tell future you about the things that God has been showing you during these last eight weeks? What has he been impressing upon you? And, and write those things down, address it to yourself. At the end of the service, we're going to encourage you, put it in the mailbox in the lobby. And in a few months, we'll mail it back to you. But it's just a way to remind you, to impress upon you, Lord, this is what you wanted in my life. And I want to remember these things. I want to celebrate these things. And, and so we're going to do that together. So uh, take out your postcard. Find a couple things to write. And in just a moment, our band's going to lead you through these last moments.